If you are a parent, raise your hand. If you hope to be a parent someday, raise your hand. If you have children and, and kind of the lease has run out and you'd really like to swap them for new children, let me, let me see your hands. Uh, okay, some of you did that. Uh, nobody, well, Travis was the only one in the first service who did that. That's actually called being a grandparent, and it is one of the coolest things ever. I get to play with them and give them back. It is awesome. On, on Waylon's birthday, right before we were going to leave, Janie gave him um, this, this uh, cupcake, which was just filled with sugar. It was the coolest thing I've ever seen. Ten minutes in, dude had this sugar rush, and he's running around dancing. Uh, we're videoing it, and Caleb's just going, I hate y'all. And we're going, ha, 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 ha. He said it was hours before he came down from the sugar rush. We left. And... Now, here's what the Bible says about children in Psalm 127.3. Children are a what? A gift from the Lord. They are a what? Reward from him. Yeah, we went on. We went on, Mary. Thank you for staying at the first part of the sentence, but we went on. All right. Now, the reward thing can be good or bad, right? Because um, how many of you are paying for your raising? Meaning, your mom or your dad said to you, I hope you have a child just like you. My mama did that. Janie and I both have said that at various times to one or more of our children. And um, uh, <laughs> good or bad, they are a gift, they're a reward from the Lord. Now, the question I want to ask today is, how would you define success in raising children, raising the next generation. When Caleb was just a couple months old, we moved to Palestine in 1995, and, and we did this series with Dr. James Dobson, who was America's psychologist, you know, and, and what Dr. Dobson said, I've never forgotten, he said, when it comes to teenagers, so Caleb's just a couple of months old, we got lots of time, he says, when it comes to the teenage years, just get them through. If you survive, they survive, yay, you know, that, I've never forgotten that, but, but here's how culture says we are successful in raising kids. Culture says success is raising well-rounded, well-educated, happy kids. I don't agree with that at all. I would rather have kids who love the Lord and want to serve him than worry about getting a straight A in Algebra 2. Happy? I know, folks, I, know, I know folks in this church that bow down to the altar of happiness. And if I'm not happy, I'm going to make sure nobody else around me is happy. I would rather my children have the joy of the Lord. In, in Nehemiah chapter 8, he says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And if you're feeling weak today, I'm willing to bet it's because you've not tapped into the joy of the Lord. See, happiness is all about what happens. Is everything that happens to you good? No, some of you aren't sure. Happiness is an outside job. Joy is an inside job. I want the joy of the Lord, and I want my kids to know about the joy of the Lord. And I'm praying, Janie and I pray for Waylon all the time, my grandson, two years old. That, that first of all, he'll come to the Lord at an early age and that he will hear God's voice his entire life and he will respond to that voice. Now, I, I want to read you something. I've read it before, but I've read portions of it. Here's the whole thing. This was actually written for the public education system, but it could apply to religion or religious churches as well. Here's, here's what it says. 
Once upon a time, the animals decided they must do something heroic to meet the problems of a new world, so they organized a school. And here's the curriculum. They adopted an activity curriculum consisting of running, climbing, swimming, and flying. And to make it easier to administer the curriculum, all the animals took all the subjects. The duck was excellent in swimming, in fact, better than his instructor, but he made only passing grades in flying and was very poor in running. Since he was slow in running, he had to stay after school and also drop swimming in order to practice running. This was kept up until his webbed feet were badly worn and he was only average in swimming. But average was acceptable in school, so nobody worried about that except the duck. The rabbit started at the top of the class in running but had a nervous breakdown because of so much makeup work in swimming. The squirrel was excellent in climbing until he developed frustration in the flying class where his teacher made him start from the ground up instead of from the treetop down. He also developed a Charlie horse from overexertion and then got a C in climbing and a D in running, but again, average is okay. The eagle was a problem child and was disciplined severely. In climbing class, he beat all the others to the top of the tree, but insisted on using his own way to get there. At the end of the year, an abnormal eel that could swim exceedingly well and also run, climb, and fly just a little had the highest average and was declared valedictorian. The prairie dogs... They stayed out of school and fought the tax levy because the administration would not add digging and burrowing to the curriculum. They apprenticed their children to a badger and later joined the groundhogs and gophers to start a successful private school. This story was written by a man named George Rivas in 1946 when he was the assistant superintendent of the Cincinnati schools. And and the moral of the story was... No child is just like every other child. There's, there's no, there's no one-size-fits-all curriculum. And what have we done in our public education system? We've spent 80 years trying to force all children in the same mold, right? Well, it happens in churches too. A religious church, an overly religious church, says everybody has to look like this. But our Heavenly Father created us different. Yes, we, we bear his image, but every one of us is given at least one spiritual gift when we come to Christ, and he has a design and purpose on your life. So there is no such thing as a cookie-cutter Christian, and that's something I want the next generation to know. Now, as you might expect, Jesus framed this discussion about the next generation differently than his culture did, and certainly differently than our culture did, and he asked an interesting question when it comes to raising children that I think we need to look at today. Here it is in Matthew 16, 26. He says, For what will it profit a man or woman, what will it profit a boy or girl, if he or she gains the whole world, if they become well-rounded, well-educated, happy people, and yet they forfeit their soul? We're telling them to buy into the temporary while ignoring the permanent. And then he asks this question. He says, what will a man or woman, boy or girl, give in exchange for a soul? And the implication is when you're standing before God and you've pursued all the wrong things, you would give it all up, all the popularity, all the money, all the stuff, you would give it all up in exchange for your soul if you could do that. But you can't do that. Now, when it comes to children, raising children, wouldn't you agree that our society rarely, if ever, gets it right? Hello? That's a yes or no question. Does does our society get it right when it comes to raising children? Thank you. So, the most important thing we can do is impart spiritual life to the next generation. Now, I'm going to ask a question, and you're going to say it is. Or I'm going to do an if statement, you're going to say it is, and it's true, but you'll hear it. So I'm going to say, if physical life is temporary, you're going to say what? 
Okay, now Rachel told me this is part of an experimentation thing. So like people may be watching online today and they don't want to come if there's only two people in the congregation. So you have to answer because you're going to help people realize there is somebody here. I'm not just talking because when you look online, you can't see anybody but who's right here, right? So you're going to help invite people to church by the way you answer this question or this statement. If physical life is temporary, I got another one for you. If spiritual life is permanent, then the most important thing we can do is impart spiritual life, not physical life, not stuff to the next generation. Does that make sense? Now, there's a verse that I love, and and we don't know who wrote this psalm, but it's Psalm 71. Here's verse 18. It says, even when I'm old and gray, and before some of you smart alecks point out that I have no gray, let me tell you, I have gray in my beard, and you may or may not be privileged enough to see that someday. I don't know. I have gray in my chest hair, and you will never see the gray in my chest hair. I'm just saying. I'm saying, hallelujah, yes. I'm just saying that, that the psalmist doesn't know our struggle, Neil. He doesn't know. So I'm going to add that. Even when I'm old and gray or bald, do not forsake me. And here's, here's really the whole point. Do not forsake me, God, until I declare your power to the next generation. Your mighty acts to all who are to come. God, give me a shot at the next generation. Let let me live a little bit longer so I can tell the next generation about you. And then, then we do know who wrote Psalm 34. We read the first three verses. Here's the next five verses. This is David who wrote this. What do I want to declare to the next generation? It's right here. I sought the Lord. He answered me. God is a God who answers prayer. He delivered me from all my fears. How many of you have ever been afraid? How many of you are lying? Because you didn't say, I'm never afraid. You just, wait, you just wait. God delivers from fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. If you are covered with shame today, it's because you're not looking at your heavenly father. And it's something I desperately want the next generation to understand. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. Oh, I love this one. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Or another translation says he rescues them. And then this, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Give me a few more days, God, to pour into the next generation because they don't know yet. They've not tasted what I've tasted and I need to share with this generation how good you are, how powerful you are. Let me live a little bit longer. And then I love this verse and if anybody wants to put something on my headstone, here it is. That's kind of morbid, but... Anyway, Acts 13, 36. Now, when David, here it is, had served God's purpose in his generation, his own generation, I can't serve my purpose. I can't serve God's purpose in David's generation. It happened thousands of years ago. But by God's power and God's grace, I can serve this generation. And then look what it says. And then he died. There's no greater thing I can think of than to have somebody say, Doug served God's generation, God's purposes in his generation. Then the dude died because physical life is temporary. Spiritual life is forever. So I want to spend this life pouring value into the next generation. See, we're not called to raise well-rounded, well-educated, happy kids. What we're called to do is unleash single-minded, Christ-centered, biblically-anchored world changers for the glory of God. Here's the thing on your listening guide. Our job is not to keep them safe. Our job is to send them out for the glory of God. So if you're trying to keep your children safe, you're not accomplishing God's will in their life. 
You're to raise them up to be biblically anchored, Christ, fully devoted followers of Christ who will change the world. And here's, here's what we need to tell the most cause-driven, mission-minded generation in history. There, there's some things we can teach them. They were created by God. They need to understand. You need to understand. Every person is a creation of God, but not everybody is a child of God. God creates you in your mother's womb, but you become a child of God by choice, by responding to God's grace in your life. So you were created by God. You're chosen by God to make a difference. You're called by God. You're gifted by God. And you are empowered by God's Holy Spirit to make a difference in the world. That's what we need to tell our children and the next generation. Now, a couple of cautions. First one, compare everything to Scripture. You need to have an authority. And the authority needs to be the unchanging word of God. Because your nine-year-old is going to see stuff that you didn't see till you were 19 or 29 And if we don't ground them to the word of God, they will be poisoned by the messages of this world. God, let me live long enough. Let me show a life in front of them that shows your splendor, your glory. You're a God who answers. You're a God who encamps around those who fear you and you rescue people. Give me a few more days to pass that along. Second caution. Every force in the world, both seen and unseen, will fight you when you try to impart spiritual life to the next generation but we don't have to be afraid because here's what the Bible says. God has given us everything that we need to do everything he has called us to do. Now we're going to look at a passage of Moses and he's going to explain to us how um, to to anchor the next generation to the word of God or how we're saying it, how to impart spiritual life to the next generation. So in Deuteronomy chapter six, Moses has gathered the whole uh, nation of Israel together. He's given kind of his final big talk and he says this in Deuteronomy 6, 4. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now I want to teach you a Hebrew word. So Hebrew word for the day is Shema. I want you to say Shema. Now say it a little faster, Shema. All right, so uh, a little bit of education today. Um, Shema, uh, what does that mean? It's, it's kind of like, you know, on the video when he calls his mom and she won't shut up and she won't, you know, he can't give a word in edgewise or whatever. Or it's kind of like you're going down Walmart and you hear somebody three uh, rows over and, and some lady is just kind of, and she's just going, going, you know, or, or somebody's driving and, and you see that and, and you, you say out loud, who is that woman? And your best friend goes, dude, don't you know? That's Shema. I'm 54 years old. I've earned the right to do a dad joke or a granddad joke to help you remember. Now, that's not what that means. I just want you to remember the word. And I'll do anything short of sin to help you remember this word, Shema. All right, here it is. I love the Jews. I love the Hebrews because when they name something, all they did was they took the first word. So Shema, it's one of the greatest prayers in the Jewish history. They're supposed to pray it in the morning. They're supposed to pray it at night. And all it means is here, because the first word is here. Shema means here. So they're like, hey, let's call this prayer here. It's very practical. My explanation was better, wasn't it? That's Shema. All right. Anyway. So Shema Yisrael, that's the Hebrew. Hear, O Israel, and what are you supposed to hear? Well, here's, the, here's what I want you to hear. We need supporting voices that say the same thing we say to our children. Parents, you're the most important voice, but you can't be the only voice. And Moses was saying, hear, O Israel, hear, nation of Israel. We would say, hear, new lifers. You need more than your voice telling your children about God. 
This isn't just parent to child. It's one generation to the next generation. And in this instance, it was the Hebrew nation to the next generation of the Hebrew nation. See, in the Old Testament times, the family unit was very, very different than it is today. Back then, you would have a parent and their siblings and their adult children all living in the same compound, grandparents, great-grandparents. As long as they lived, they would all be, and if they had workers who, who, who they were employed, they would be like family too. And so you might have 80 people living in this tent compound or in this little city, all of them saying the same thing to your children. There is one God. He is a God who the angel of the Lord encamps around all of the voices saying the same thing. Do you see how powerful that would be if everybody was telling your children about the one true God? In, in Haiti, that's uh, my friend Almondo. He was the first ever trip leader for our Haiti group, our translator. And, and his parents, I've been to his house. Hannah and I spent three nights in his house. But here's what he did. His parents lived here and his three brothers lived in this house. And there was this one common wall. Well, when Almondo got married and started having children, he built onto that. So now their house is right here. So you got all of these people speaking into his children. I said, man, that's what the church is supposed to be. It's one of the reasons the Bible is called a spiritual, or the, the church is called in the Bible a spiritual family. Now, next week, we're going to look at Timothy and Paul. We're going to study their lives. Um, but if you, if you look at just Timothy, he was part of the next generation for Paul. And, and he was a little bit timid. His mom and his grandmother spoke into his life. We don't know why his dad wasn't in his life, but his, his mom was named Eunice and his, his grandmother was named Lois. And I just laugh because even in Bible times, they had old people names. I'm sorry, if you're Eunice or Lois, I'm sorry. That just sounds like an old person name. I'm sorry. Go by your middle name. Um, my, my, uh, my grandmother was named, my mom's mom was Gertrude. Doesn't that sound like an old woman's name? And my mom's first name was Vonnie, and my mom refused to be known as Vonnie, V-O-N-N-I-E. She always went by Bess. I was probably 10 or 11 before I knew her first name was Vonnie. And I knew she hated it. I just th- assumed she hated it because it was an old person's name, but it, she actually hated it because she was... She was named after her father, who was Vaughn, and her father beat her mother, and her father beat her and her seven siblings, and all they wanted to do was get away from him. All right, that had nothing to do with this, but um, Eunice and Lois spoke into Timothy's life, and then God does for Timothy, for Eunice and Lois, what he wants to do for you. He brought an outside voice in the apostle Paul to speak life into this young man whose dad wasn't even around. So Paul comes in and he goes, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, Timothy, but set an example for the believers in faith and life and love and speech and in purity. And he says, God has not given you a spirit of fear, Timothy, but a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. And that just sounded different to him when, when, a, when an adult man spoke into his life. It sounded different than when Eunice said it. Have you ever noticed when someone else says something that you've been saying for 16 years and your kid go, hey, well, God just showed me this. I'm like, dude, I've been saying it. I prayed it over your mother's womb. I don't even get credit. And I don't care if I get credit if they finally get it. Janie and I have looked at each other so many times ago. How many times did we say that? And it took someone else speaking into our children's lives for them to hear it. Hear, oh, new lifers. You need supporting voices telling your children about the one true God. Second thing is we got to raise expectations. Instead of dumbing down what the next generation should do, we need to raise the expectations. God wants to raise the bar. So look at, look at this verse. Love the Lord your God with part of your heart and with some of your soul and with a little bit of your strength and just a part of your mind. Is that what the Bible says? Did I get it wrong? 
I'm not so sure. Because I know a whole lot of Christians living like this in front of their children and then wondering why their children don't make Jesus Christ a priority. They give a little. Don't go crazy. Don't be a fanatic. Let's live this in front of our children, then let's blame God when they walk away. Let's try that. That's the American way. You see, we've dumbed it down and we say, oh, just give a little bit, Johnny. Just try harder. And when you mess up, just try harder. The church in America is failing miserably because we're trying to be Christ-like instead of training to be Christ-like. You don't have enough power. It's like this. I said this in the first service. How many of you could walk out the door right now and you could try really, really hard and you could run 26 miles of a marathon? Let me see your hand. Nah, there actually was one person in the first service. Freak. <laughs> How many of you, if you trained, let's say over the next 12 months, you had a training regimen and, and you started, Chad was sitting here and he goes, I would die. I'm not even going to try. But if you were to train for the next 12 months, how many of you could at least make it through 26 miles? Stop trying to be Christ-like and train to be Christ-like. Now, here's what, here's what the verse actually says. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. How much? Jesus never lowered the standard. He always raised it. He never said, come try your best. He said, if anyone wants to follow me, he has to deny himself. When's the last time you denied yourself anything? He says, if you want to find life, you must lose it for my sake. He said to a very wealthy young man who said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, you need to go and sell everything, give it to the poor and come follow me. And the young man went away sad. Now, he didn't tell everybody that, but he told this young man that because money finances was this young man's God. And he said, you'll never become a fully devoted follower of Christ as long as you have this other God in your life. So get rid of it. And the guy went away sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus said, to be mine, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. He never lowered the standard. See, in the Old Testament, by the time a child was 12 years old, they would have memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. How many of our children can even tell you in order what the first five books of the Old Testament are called? Let's just, let's just for fun. What's the first one? Woohoo! A 12-year-old Hebrew would have had them all memorized. We've lowered the standard for our children instead of raising it. And, and so the, I read about this article uh, in Time magazine called Kidults. I'm putting this up here so you know what I'm talking about. They're not a child. They're not an adult. They're kidult because they haven't figured out how to live yet. And we have contributed to this generation. We got people who are adults acting like children. And we're saying it's okay. This generation knows there's something more. They just don't know what that purpose is. And the Bible knows nothing of a kidult. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 11. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And he doesn't say, when I became a teenager, I still acted like a child. The Bible doesn't even know about that. Look what it says. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. We've got to raise the expectations for our children. In, in Old Testament times, you were a child or you were an adult. There was a point where you flipped a switch and you quit acting like a kid anymore we've given a whole generation of children permission to live 20 30 years and still act like a child that's not acceptable raise the bar when I was in youth ministry for 19 years the more I challenged teenagers the more they rose 
to that challenge, to my expectations. And quite honestly, I would rather have had some of those teenagers in leadership positions in those churches than some of the deacons who were 80, 90 years old still acting like they were two. We've got to raise the bar. So let me just tell you, if you're under 30, you can be a minister. If you're 13, if you're 19, God has called you to be a minister today, not next year. You're a minister today. So we need to tell this next generation. You can own a company. You can write a book. You can lead a mission trip. You can lead your teacher to Christ. Raise those expectations. See, we've been telling this generation what they can't do. Let me tell you next generation. If you're under 30, let me tell you what's true about you. Don't you ever let someone look down on you because you're young. But set an example for the believers in faith and life and love and speech and in purity. You have it within you to be a fully devoted follower of Christ now, not tomorrow. Third, we've got to keep it real. Look what Moses says in verses 6 through 9. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. When, this could be at dinner time. Spiritual conversation should be normal for you. We used to have this thing called the one-minute devotional Bible for students, and, and we would uh, at least once a day, Monday through Friday, usually lunchtime when Janie was teaching our kids homeschool, we would sit down and we would have a meal and then we would open up this one-minute Bible and I would read a passage and we'd read through it and we would just discuss it. This should be normal when you're going to ballet, when you're going to football, when you're going to, to band practice. It should be a part of who you are. You cannot lead your children where you, are, uh, where you have never been. See, this is what I want you to understand. God is not a part of your life. He is your life. Later in Deuteronomy... Moses is still talking and he said, these words, these words are not idle words. These words are your life. So it's never, Christianity was never to be designed to be a part. It was designed to encompass everything. There are slices of the pie, but you're a Christian in all of those slices as well. Well, I don't want to shove it down my kids' throats. Well, here's what I've seen in 30 plus years of ministry. If you shove it down your kids' throats and you're a hypocrite, they will smell it, they will reject it. However, this is also what I've seen. If you love the Lord and are genuine in your faith, it may take a while, but there's going to be a day that your children say, man, I wish I had the faith my mom or my dad had. You don't have to be cool. You don't have to be hip. You just have to be real. Now, how many of you, in the first service, very few, how many of you have china dishes, you know, the fine china that, that used to be a thing? Okay, there's a few. Yeah, Janie's raising her hand. It's because we have her mamas. We had this whole thing. We had this discussion when we were getting married 27 years ago, and her mom said, you have to register for, for China. And Janie said, I don't want China. Well, you have to. Why? Because everybody registers for China. And hers had been up on the shelf, and I don't know if your mom ever used them, but we inherited them. We never use them. They sit on a the shelf. They're very valuable. They look good, and we never use them. There's never been an occasion special enough for us to use the fine China. And there's a lot of people that their relationship with Christ is like fine china. Oh, it's valuable. We just never use it. I love Jesus, but you wouldn't know it by the time I spend with him. That's china plate faith. I love the church, but I'll just show up when it's convenient. That's china plate faith. I love the Bible. I'll never read it. China plate faith. If Jesus is not a part of your daily life, do not expect your children to follow you. 
you want, if you want them to think the word of God is important, they better see you reading the word of God. If you want them to be people of prayer, you better make prayer a priority. If you want them to believe that church is important, you better make it a priority. Have you ever noticed how far down the list of priorities church attendance is? When's the last time you skipped something so you could go to church? After I said this in the early service, Chad caught me out there and he said, I took my grandson hunting yesterday and we spent six hours. We hadn't seen anything all season long and I was going to take him again this morning and his 10-year-old grandson said, huh, I got to go to church. He skipped hunting so he could be at church. When do you hear that? I hear excuses all the time. And b- bottom line, and I'm not saying that, that, that you can't miss church. I have vacation days when, when my girls were in gymnastics. One time a year, we would go to the state gymnastics uh, meet, and usually it was on a Sunday. And on those day, those weekends, we would go find a church where we could attend on Saturday night. And if there wasn't one, one time Caleb said, Dad, why don't we just listen to one of your old sermons? I went, okay, that's kind of weird. And so we stuck in one of my old sermons, and we had church that way. And, and we just listened to it. Today, since we have the internet, since we stream on Facebook, when Janie and I are gone, we've, we sit up and uh, we get up and uh, like at 9.30 and we watch the service, partly, no, we, we watch the service because, because we want to be a part of what's going on here. And sometimes I watch both services because I just love the local church. You can, you can do church whether you're on the, on the campus or not and your kids will notice. See, your kids know what's important to you. You can say to your kids, you're running with the wrong friends. And then they look at your friends and they go, you know what your friends do? They're not encouraging you to follow Jesus. They're not encouraging you to love your wife. You're going to tell me about friends when I see your friends? You want kids to know that your friends are important. You need to have those who who are fully devoted followers of Christ in your corner. And you should spend time with them so that the kids know this is the type of friends you need to have in your life, not people who lead you away from Christ. You want your kids to stop pursuing the things of this world? You stop borrowing money that you don't have to buy things you don't need. You want your kids to have integrity? You have integrity. You're sending a message to them that life, happiness comes in stuff. And and if you really want to know what happiness is, next week at 5 o'clock we start a new Bible study series on what makes you happy. They need to see the reality of God's presence in your life. You are not called to raise well-rounded, well-educated, happy children. You're, You're called to raise biblically grounded fully devoted followers of Christ who will change the world. So you need supporting voices, you need to raise the expectations, you need to keep it real. Would you bow your heads for just a minute? Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would empower us to do what you call us to do at this moment. And I want to ask you a question with your head still bowed. How many of you, as I was speaking today, God spoke into your heart that I really need to do a better job of imparting spiritual life to my children, to my grandchildren, or to just this next generation? Would you raise your hands? All right. Now, what usually happens is we do church And we say, oh, man, I'm going to do something about it. We walk out, we get in our cars, we go to lunch, and we forget what we've just done. 
I'm going to ask you to do something just a little bit different to signify that you're serious about imparting spiritual life to the next generation. If you raised your hand without talking, without thinking about it, I want you to get up out of your chair. I want you to come down here to this altar, and I want you to kneel right now. Let's do it. I want you to... I want you to pray, and I want you to, and if you can't, just find some, some rows. This is awesome. You know how many people we're going to have serving in children's ministry next week? Mm-hmm. I want you to ask God to forgive you for the times in your life when you've put anything as more important than following Jesus. And I want you to ask God to show you how to rearrange your priorities so that his kingdom is number one in your life. Now I want you to ask God, what do you want me to do with what I've heard today. Show me clearly, Lord, and I'll obey you. Father, I pray that you would raise up more and more people in my generation to believe in, speak into, and lead the next generation to be fully devoted followers of Christ. And Father, for every person who responds to that call, I pray that even when they're old and gray, that you would not forsake them, God, till they declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. Help us invest into the children that you've, you've placed in our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.